Okay, welcome back and good morning. Today is Thursday, June 24. This is class number three in the series on Nisargadat Maharaj. Uh, reading first here from the biography. It's not like a biography, it's actually an interview with David Godman. David, we'll just say. Uh, <clears throat> interviewed by a woman named Harriet. <laughs> on the website davidgodman.org. Uh, learning more about him, it seems that he he worked with the library and some of the um, informational aspects of Ramana Maharshi's ashram after Ramana Maharshi passed over or left this body, the world, and this lifetime. And that's called Ramana, Ramana, Ash, Ramana Ashramam. Ramanashramam, Ramanashramam means Ramana Ashram. And so you'll see that uh, a few places. And he's uh, giving recollections of encounters with Nisargadat Maharaj, whom he calls Maharaj. And he calls Ramana Maharshi Bhagwan. So I will sometimes say Maharaj, meaning Nisargadat, and sometimes I'm just going to say Nisargadat, and sometimes when he's saying Bhagwan, I'm going to mean, I'm going to say Ramana Maharshi, or Ramana. Uh, Maharshi, Maharishi, same, equals great Rishi. Maharaja equals great king. These are honorifics. It's like calling Gautama um, uh, Bhante, <laughs> If you keep calling your teacher an honorific, then we're not sure which teacher with the same honorific is mentioned. Uh, so I prefer to use the names, and I don't mean any disrespect for anybody who's sensitive to that. But we had the discussion in class just a moment ago uh, about levels of attainment and our impressions of different teachers and um, discernment. <laughs> And getting, you know, determine getting a be, being willing to uh, have an opinion, and know that it's not a final conclusion. And we have opinions about all sorts of things that uh, I think are rightly stated and rightly held flexibly to, rightly known and acknowledged, and also recognized as um, provisional, uh, current, uh, subject to change, not tightly held. But, But the more evidence we come across, the more we read and study and think and meditate and contemplate, uh, the more some of those opinions will strengthen and yet also should be rightly uh, modified or dropped with new opinions and new perspectives as well, of course. And all of that is to say that I have a perspective on Nisargadat um, that may be the same as some people and may be different. And that's ordinary. And that could be called a bias. <laughs> And I think it's probably fine to state it right now, uh, which is that, you know, 
in terms of levels of attainment, which we really should know there are, like even Nisargadot talking about self-realization versus complete and final realization, or an experience of awakening, which for Nisargadot seems to equal becoming a yani, meaning a knower, yet not being final. Because <laughs> he's talked about people coming, there was this, the story of uh, Rudy and the others coming, <clears throat> Maurice Friedman, uh, that Nisargadot may have recognized as a yani and said all their words are true. The yani only speaks true. But, <laughs> questioning them, pushing them, um, it's clear, he said, that it's the view that um, that realization, making them a yani, which he said makes all their words true or something, which could be, you know, that, that itself is an issue, meaning look deserve worthy of consideration. What do you mean the yani's words are always true? Sometimes they say opposite things when they're also true, or they're contradictory, they're also true. How? Well, true, in a sense, means coming from, uh, coming without conflict, without internal conflict regarding Gnosis or the Yanni's realization. However, if indeed, which I think is absolutely true, or I agree with, that this, the self-realization that makes one a Yanni, and their words are always true, is not the end of the line. That means that the being is not finished with the path. And that, to me, is very easily um, correlated to third-level attainment in Buddhism versus fourth and final-level arahant. Third-level attainment is non-returner, and I think that's very much akin to higher self, late-sixth density. And fourth stage uh, is uh, complete and perfect enlightenment, or the entity pretty quickly would go to 8th density after death, not 6, or they, you know, are finished with the octave. They're finished with uh, the entirety of reincarnation in the octave. And I just don't think that that all the great teachers that people think are so wonderful um, are at the same level of complete and perfect final attainment. It's pretty straightforward, actually. And <clears throat> we should be, you know, no, no, I don't, feel people are attacking me. I don't get that. And there are no comments, so uh, you can attack in your mind. But I don't get that much. But there are some people that are very aggressive about their opinions about their guru's attainment or his being final and complete in the end and the uh, finish. So like Osho or Rajneesh. Uh, Nisargadat talked about him freely, and I respect Nisargadat's free talking very much. And I understand why he was arguing or liked to argue or <clears throat> got into uh, squabbles with a lot of people because most people came to him and most people go to gurus with a big tangle of mental complexity, distortion, wrong view, opinionatedness, mainly associated with identity. But like Raw said, identity is fully dropped only leaving sixth density. And that's totally correlative, correlates to the Buddhist understanding that the third stage awakened non-returner that I'm correlating to higher self or late sixth entity, which I think is correlative to the the state of yani, is not the end. And Ra said they'll leave sixth entity and then drop memory and identity. Okay. So then, actually, they break the eighth fetter, which is 
the uh, sort of um, after echo of identity not yet fully um, realized as empty or uh, still held, even in sixth density, just like Ra said, we have become light. Okay, good. That's their identity. And it's called unified self-consciousness. I is one. All is light. I is this one light. Fine. That's identity. Identity as one. Gautama didn't talk about one, uh, but he talked about the ending of identity also with the breaking of the eighth fetter. Eighth and ninth and then tenth is done only by one who's at who, who's qualified to leave the octave immediately. And and the simple story is, uh, I don't think Nisargadot uh, is leaving the octave. <laughs> so, I mean, he looks... He looks just too much human to me. <laughs> Meanwhile, his teachings, I think, are excellent. Meanwhile, some of them I don't understand or I think I disagree with. But, you know, does that mean I'm bad? <clears throat> I don't think so. And if you think I'm bad, does that mean you're bad? No. But, I, I, you know, we should be free enough to say what we think and be open to correction and growth. And so somebody like Osho, where... Um, Nisargadot had a direct comment, and I totally agree with him, saying that Osho uh, had some realiza- had realization, but he but Nisargadot saying he didn't quite understand what Osho was doing with his students or his teaching method, and that's very much correlative to the Chongsu chapter six, the distinction between the way the Tao of a sage and the talent of a sage, the sage, which is basically, I mean, the real sages. Uh, <clears throat> I think, would be third and fourth stage attainment beings. Non-returner, higher self, uh, and uh, or complete and perfect enlightenment, qualified to leave the octave immediately, finished with any identity. And that's just as Nitsargadot uh, said. You, uh, Ayani has had um, self-realization. That's not the end of the path because they haven't experienced their own death. And that's why he was, you know, rough on even some Yanis. <clears throat> um, he said that of Rudy, whoever that was. He said that, I think, of Maurice Friedman. Um, but experiencing your own death is basically a realization that there is that identity is, is Maya. And that's breaking the eighth fetter. And that would qualify one to go to seven and eighth density, and that's the end of the octave, and that goes straight to fourth and final attainment, Arahan. And that is the union of Jivatman and Paramatman, I'd say. And that is the end of this all. And that's complete and perfect enlightenment. And the Yanis that haven't done it are not finished. Now, it's also my opinion that somebody like Osho, um, with all of the, you know, upaya tricks (laughs) or teaching methods he used, um would not be somebody at the final and complete level because those that, you know, in my opinion, Nityananda and Gautama are clearly and obviously finished. And what I see from them is, uh, like I said in the class, uh, transparency and um, transpersonal um, non-human achievement. They're not human. They're just doing... They're just forces of nature and without any sense of personality or persona. And that, to me, uh, is indicative that 
<clears throat> they finish the octave and they're just doing their time before they're finished with this body. I don't see that same attainment with uh, Nisargadat. I don't see that same attainment with Osho. Um, Ramana Maharshi, um, uh, I could I could certainly uh, not fully see it, but I could accept that he would be finished with the octave. Absolutely. Webu um, Sayadaw for sure, meaning Arahan. Because the, the Arahan, <coughs> um, who's broken identity, you know, there's a big difference, okay, between higher self and Paramatman, or union with Paramatman. And that's all, essentially, in my view, the breaking of the final three fetters, just like Buddhism, in accord with Buddhist teaching, which is conceit and restlessness and final avidya, or basic avidya. And restlessness doesn't mean agitation of the body-mind either. <laughs> restlessness is vibrational. It's actually the polarity of light. It's actually very subtle. It's ultimately the basis for identity. Ninth fetter creates eighth fetter, in a sense. And so it's the restlessness of mind that has very subtle grasping uh, of itself, of its own process, that fashions an identity, uh, a perception. And you see Gautama speaking about complete and perfect enlightenment, cessation of perception and consciousness. Yes. <laughs> and that means what we call perception and consciousness isn't arising. Subjectivity isn't arising. Um, the distinction of subject-object or um, agency seer and seen isn't arising. There's what we call perception and therefore awareness, but it's transubjective. And those who are at that level um, are deeply stilled, deeply stilled, meaning they, um, I mean, I had a little bit of a taste of that where uh, my mind recently was going into an old habit of, th of thought, of thought attachment, fantasy thought attachment, imagination. And starting in on it, at a certain level I felt revulsion. At the very grasping of um, attention to the thought forms of imagination to develop them in ways that had previously been satisfying, that <clears throat> it, it, it felt painful to hold, and I, I felt a, a dukkha. The dukkha uh, associated with um, establishing a coherent um, thought stream of imagination. Uh, imagining something that was previously pleasing or, or satisfying in some sense, that <clears throat> even starting up on that Sisyphean, Sisyphean, like Sisyphus rolling the stone up the up the hill and then it rolls back down, uh, and you got to roll push it back up and it rolls back down. That this sort of circularity of uh, the very subtle process of grasping, it, it's basically bhavatana. The, 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 the dukkha of bhavatana, uh, becoming grasping. Baba, I said last time, was being. It's actually becoming. Um, 
there's certain terms in Buddhism I never really studied deeply in the past, and therefore I still don't, you know, I have incorrect, uh, mistaken understanding, description of some terms. So bhava, actually becoming or existence, three forms or several forms of uh, tana, craving, which is basically how it is that ignorance or avidya leads to uh, tenth fetter, ignorance, goes to restlessness, which is a very subtle agitation uh, in deep mind of consciousness and perception even, that fashions identity eighth fetter, tanamanas, another form of <laughs> tana, uh, being the craving of mind that fashions uh, this uh, false identity. Uh, beings who finished that don't play games. They're so stilled, um, like Ramana Maharshi looked, yeah, like Webu Sayadaw looked, and like Gautama and Nityananda um, radiated palpably for me, and um, th they were teaching, they were doing a lot of physical action or magic, Nityananda doing a lot of magic, a lot of uh, city activity, and uh, Gautama endlessly teaching, including teaching in the middle of the night for a, a period of time that was reserved for the devas. Okay? <laughs> he had a time reserved nightly for the devas to, in, to materialize in third density space time and ask questions. That that's not done by somebody who's... Um, Neither, you know, who, who's not finished. Um, the, the one who's really finished has um, lives the inseparability of uh, physical metaphysical. They're not in phys their body. The body isn't physical clearly. The mind is continually moving freely in through space, time, and time space. Uh, the one that that is of that final attainment. I mean, there are, you know, great teachers that may not be finished or that are at the level of higher self or third stage attainment um, that would be interfacing directly with uh, devas, for sure. Uh, but to me, uh, I don't see Nisargadat <clears throat> at the same position, at the same eighth density, uh, end of the octave as Gautama and Nityananda, and I would probably say Ramana, Ramana Maharshi and um, Weba Sayadaw. There are others, obviously, I don't know everybody, um, and, you know, it's good to disagree if you wish. Uh, but from what I've sensed or seen, there's a radical cessation of grasping in the deep mind associated with the final breakage of false identity, eighth fetter dead finished, broken, requiring ninth fetter broken too, you say. You can't break the eighth without breaking the ninth, meaning the, the agitation, very subtle polarity of um, manas, you know, tana manas, craving manas, eighth fetter, craving mindedness generates subjectivity or identity. And when that's broken, there are a lot of things the entity doesn't do anymore, ever. And that conforms most clearly for me to the manifestations of Nityananda and Gautama um, and just in a 
you know, uh, there, there are big sons and small sons, <laughs> but they're all sons, right? There are old sons and small sons, uh, old and, and great and smaller, but equally great, but smaller. It looked to me like Ramana Maharshi and Weibo Sayadaw were simply, you know, they're, 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 their work was different. Their plan was different. Uh, but the ending of identity, what Nisargatot calls um, experiencing your own death, it's basically experiencing the breaking of the eighth fetter and the ending of the subtle craving agitation, ninth fetter, that fashions uh, identity in mind. There, there's radical stillness and, and lack of agitation, right? Tranquilization, radical equanimity, tranquilization of the basis of ninth fetter restlessness. It ain't just moving my body and tapping my feet. It's not this restlessness at all. It's the subtle restlessness that fashions identity. It's a craving associated with perception that leads to subjective consciousness. This, when broken, yields an entity that does not look human anymore. They are not human. <laughs> There's no persona mask. Persona as the as a Greek root. Uh, etymologically meaning mask. The mask is off. It's only Paramatman, Parabrahman coming out. And it looks a certain way. And I don't think it looks like Nisargadat, frankly. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm any better, um, but I do think that there's a difference. And take that into account. Meanwhile, uh, clearly he's a Yanni. Um... But my experience, or my perception, is that beings who've broken the eighth and ninth fetters <laughs> um, don't do a lot of things that are human, in terms of the way the mind works, in terms of the way they interact. And Osho's teaching of Zorba the Buddha, while I like that personally, um, I find that it's actually not possible, as one goes closer to Buddha. <laughs> As one gets closer, you know, moving through five, six, seven, eight, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not finished at all. But I can sense the road ahead in the headlights. Definitely. I can sense the road ahead in the headlights. I haven't gotten there yet, but I can see what's going on a little bit. And um, uh, approaching the Buddha, Zorba's dropped. There's no Zorba, the Buddha. <laughs> There's Zorba, the Yani but not Zorba the Buddha, as Osho said. And so, you know, use it for yourself or drop it, whatever you like. But that's a, it's sort of a subtle point. And what I'm just referring to is that, you know, I'm reading this series on Nisargadat after um, Nityanan, and it does feel like a drop-down. And, you know, okay. <laughs> it's just my opinion, whatever the hell that's worth. So... And, and then I'm seeing, I'm going to do some reading further from uh, the uh, interview, remembering Sargadat Maharaj from David Godman today, plus some of his um, statements or his direct teachings from the other page uh, on Nisargadat Maharaj. Uh, it feels like a drop down from Nityananda. Yeah. Okay. You know, I'm not evil to say that. <laughs> 
Uh, because there are levels of attainment. And there's a big difference between a yani, higher self, third stage awakening to Buddha, Buddhism, and um, leaping into the boundless and making it the home, or uh, the full jivatmic, uh, atman, jivatmanic union with Parbaman, and beings that have done radical still, stilling of craving at the very levels of perception and consciousness and breaking the ninth fetter, eighth and ninth fetter, yields an entity that doesn't do a lot of things that normal people and yanis will do. And that's what he said. You know, and so Nisargadat says he experienced his own death and he thinks he's totally finished with the path and goes straight to eighth density, I guess. Okay, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. So that's a preface here, (laughs) a 25-minute intro, because these things are... You know, these are considerations. And um, uh, there's a path, and that path is one, and there really are stages of development, although all is one and differentiation falls away in non-duality. But there's, you know, a relative truth of apparent sequence and apparent stages of attainment. Even Nisargadat uh, says the same thing. So... Bear that in mind, and the, the, the final point, the, the repeating the core point is, from my experience of seeing what's ahead in the headlines, um, radical cessation of uh, craving um, leads a being to manifest in certain ways and not do a whole lot of things that ordinary yanis will do. Because the yani is not the end of the line. It's the first self-realization. You can say it's, um, it's, it's third stage attainment. Fine. You can say it's greater than Sotapanna. Fine. I don't know. But uh, it's it, higher self and Paramatman are not same. Atman, Jivatman is not yet Paramatman. Even though that's its nature, it hasn't made that fusion with its true nature. Because it hasn't finished the final fetters, particularly eight, nine, ten, and beings that have finished, uh, is my in my you know limited understanding, um, the, they manifest in a certain way, in a uh, quite a stainless, spotless, unquestionable way, um, where there's just no doubt. <laughs> um, that that, there, that, there, that there's no one home, that, that this is a force of nature now, it's coming through uh, 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 the echoes of a personality and the remnant of a physical body that's living a little bit longer. But it's a radical vairagya from all uh, conditions of the five skandhas. And that that's um, greater than uh, atmanic... Uh, yani realization and and that being uh, can be known even if it's still ahead in the in the headlights so all right so uh, starting the reading top of page four and I'll try to keep an eye on the clock and read some more of Nisargadat's quotes from the other page um, towards the end here at the end so uh, Harriet is asking David about the times that he was visiting Nisargadat in Bombay. 
and uh, how he did his teaching um, and how the, the, the scene was structured. And that's very interesting. And again, some of the primary Western Vipassana teachers, Jack Cornfield, I believe, maybe Joseph Goldstein, I don't know. But some of those folks, there's a photograph of them sitting with Nisargadatta. And so they took him as a teacher or a source for teaching uh, as well. So Harriet, top of page four or so, asks, what about the other times of the day when he, Nisargadatta, was available for questioning? Did he ever sit in silence during those periods? David says, there were two periods when it was possible to question him, one in the late morning and one in the evening. Translators would be available at both sessions. He encouraged people to talk during these sessions, or at least he did when I first started going to see him. Later on, he'd use these sessions to give long talks on the nature of consciousness. He never sat quietly if no one had anything to say. He would actively solicit questions, but if no one wanted to talk to him, he would start talking himself. I only ever had one opportunity to sit with him in complete silence, and that was at the beginning of the summer monsoon. When the monsoon breaks in Bombay, usually around the end of the first week of June, there are very heavy rains that bring the city to a standstill. The storm drains are generally clogged, and for a day or so people are walking round in knee-deep water. And not just water. The sewers overflow, and the animals that live in them drown. Anyone brave enough to go for a paddle would be wading through sewage, waterlogged garbage, and the corpses of whatever animals had recently drowned. Nice government they have. Public transport comes to a halt, since in many places the water level is too high to drive through. One afternoon, two of us waded through the floodwaters to Maharaj's door. We were both staying in a cheap lodge about 200 yards away, so it wasn't that much of a trek. We scrubbed off the filth with water from a tap on the ground floor and made our way up to Maharaj's room. He seemed very surprised to see us. I think he thought that the floods would keep everyone away. He said in Marathi that there would be no session that afternoon because none of the translators would be able to make it. I assume he wanted us to leave and go home, but we both pretended that we didn't understand what he was trying to tell us. After one or more unsuccessful attempts to persuade us to go, he gave up and sat in a corner of the room with a newspaper in front of his face so that we couldn't even look at him. I didn't care. I was just happy to be sitting in the same room as him. I sat there in absolute silence with him for over an hour, and it was one of the most wonderful experiences I ever had with him. I felt an intense, rock-solid silence descend on me that became deeper and deeper as the minutes passed. There was just a glow of awareness that filled me so completely, thoughts were utterly impossible. You don't realize what a monstrous imposition the mind is until you've lived without it. Completely happy, completely silently, and completely effortlessly for a short period of time. This is, you know, like samadhi equanimity. Um, the mind is still. The conscious mind is generally still. For most of the time, I was looking in the direction of Maharaj. Sometimes he'd turn a page and glance in our direction, and when he did, he still seemed to be irritated that we hadn't left. I was smiling inwardly at his annoyance, because it wasn't touching me in any way. I had no self-consciousness, no embarrassment, no feeling of being in imposition. I was just resting contentedly in my own being. And that's a phrase that I use, we use, commonly used, resting in one's own being. Actually, 
it may it, it it may be a little bit exaggerated to say it that way, but I do commonly. It's certainly equanimity, quiet mind, non-proliferation uh, of skamskara, right? The mental contents, mental activity for skanda, sankara, samskara, uh, not jumping around like the monkey mind. Um, a the autonomous function, the autonomous arising of thinking, feeling, and sensation is not happening. There's periodic arising of sensation, thought, emotion, image, memory, but not much. And the prevailing experience is um, stillness, uh, quietude, um, spaciousness. Now, you can say that that is akin to resting in my own being. Um, it's some kind of uh, union of uh, conscious mind with the um, the the stillness of, of atmanic uh, awareness. You know, the, the idea that that we've no longer become light. We we no longer seek light. We become light. Um, I is one, the yani, and what I'm calling the first. You know, what in Buddhism I think is a third stage attainment, non-returner what is clearly um, the term being, applicable being. Ross said, mind, body, spirit, beingness, totality, complex. Beingness uh, associates with I, higher, higher self, atmanic. Is, uh, are one, is, is, when, a, when, the, when one has such depth of stillness and quietude, is that really a union with higher self? Somewhat, yeah, but not complete, actually. <laughs> one doesn't, one in in that condition of equanimity, um, shamatha, you can say, serenity. Uh, one has not fully assumed the six-dimensional uh, beingness, because one doesn't have the power of atman uh, of atman in that state. So we easily say, resting in my being, it's it's like that. But if you um, look very deeply it's not it's not full and complete and perfect and end final union with higher self but it's a good start and it leads to all sorts of wonderful things actually so i'm just saying that <laughs> you know even phrases that are useful um are in imprecise if we want to go deeper so he goes on after just over an hour of this he got up and shooed us both out I prostrated and left. Later on, I wondered why he didn't sit in silence more often, since there was clearly a very powerful quieting energy coming off of him when he was silent. Ramana Maharshi said that speaking actually interrupted the flow of the silent energy he was giving out, his pranava. I have often wondered if the same thing happened with Maharaj. Absolutely. A yani, a sotapani, a third stage awakened, uh... Uh, is of a different electromagnetic configuration than those that haven't attained, haven't made those attainments. And uh, whether Nisargadat was uh, third stage or fourth stage, whatever, um, that is a well-trained mind, a deeply stilled mind. Whether he's perfectly, completely, finally stilled is another matter, not really that important in a sense, actually. 
but um, a quiet mind quiets minds. Uh, stillness stills. Uh, the one who knows stillness stills by a natural radiation uh, of um, that stillness um, in a seven-dimensional array, in a seven-chakra, seven-energy field composite. Um, there's seven-chakra composite energy radiance uh, radiates, <laughs> manifests, uh, without word, the deep stilling and the chakra activations of 6-7 that they've made. And um, yet, um, he it, it wasn't his inclination to stay that way. Meaning he really enjoyed mixing it up with distorted minds that came to him for guidance. And that's very useful, actually, because... Um, wrong view is uh, is well um, unraveled by right view. And he was a huge teacher of right view, as far as he knew. And that was uh, particularly um, anatta, or the nature, uh, the, the, the emptiness of uh, identity. And so he very much did teach on that, for sure. Anyway, Uh, Harriet asked, what was your conclusion? David said, I realized that it was not his nature to keep quiet. His teaching method was geared to arguing and talking. That's what he felt most comfortable doing. Mm. Harriet asks, can you elaborate on that a little more? David says, I should qualify what I'm about to say by stating that most of it is just my own opinion. Based on observing him deal with the people who came to him, it doesn't come from anything I heard him say himself. When people first came to see him, He would encourage them to talk about their background. He would try to find out what spiritual path you were on and what had brought you to him. In the face of Maharaj's probing questions, visitors would end up having to justify their worldview and their spiritual practices. They'd be on one level, this would be one level of the interaction, their self-justification of their uh, thicket of views. At a deeper and more subtle level, Maharaj would be radiating an energy, Shakti, that's <laughs> Shaktipat, that's called love light radiance, that's his own pranava, that quieted your mind and made you aware of what lay underneath the mind, the manasic, and all its ideas and concepts. Now, imagine these two processes going on simultaneously. With his mind, the questioner has just constructed and articulated a version of his worldview. Underneath, though, he'll be feel- feeling the pull of his beingness which is certainly associated with stillness and freedom from identity. The knowledge of what is truly real, as opposed to the ideas that he merely thinks to be real. Maharaj's energy will be enhancing awareness of that substratum all the time. At some point, the questioner will, or could, become acutely aware of what seem to be two competing realities. The conceptual structure he's just outlined, his current wrong views, and the actual experience that underlies it, <laughs> the um, essential incomprehensible of of, uh, of of tat, of suchness, and as it is in this right now, in this moment. There was a certain look that appeared on some people's faces when that happened. A kind of indecisive, which way should I go, look. 
sometimes the questioner would realize immediately that all his ideas and beliefs were just concepts. He would drop them and rest in the beingness instead. So, fighting fire with fire. This, for me, was the essence of Maharaj's teaching technique. He wouldn't try to convince you by argument. He would instead make you argue yourself into a position that you felt to be true, and then he'd undercut that position by giving you a taste of the substratum that underlay all concepts. That's very deep. If you're ready for that, you would drop your attachment to your concepts and rest in what lay underneath them. If not, you'd blunder ahead, going deeper and deeper into the minefield of the mind. The monkey mind, uh, monkey, uh, the LSD monkey mind. Some people got it quickly. Others who were desperate for a structure to cling to, the mentalists, would come back again and again with questions that were designed merely to refine their understanding of his teachings, to refine the conceptual superstructure of their view, which he was uh, seeking to help them renounce, um, which they weren't ready yet to renounce. So this is um, Bhavatana. Um, the craving for becoming in terms of changed um, and developed mental states. Mental states particularly means a view, you know. Uh, and actually there is a ditti, there is tanaditti, I believe, craving for view in Buddhism. Some, some discussions of tana craving as the, fi- as, you know, the real linchpin of 10th fetter of Vidya is tanha. And tanha is the big problem. Uh, saying that there is the tanha of view, the craving for views. And a lot of people who came to him had that. Westerners and uh, native Hindus. Uh, but he's trying to help people see that all of this view is illusory, it's empty, and there is um, so-called deeper uh, beingness, stillness, uh, awareness, that is, you know, tat vamasi, not manasic vamasi. <laughs> Manas vamasi. No, 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 no. Not neti neti. Not manas vamasi. It's tat vamasi. Tat vamasi means uh, tat. Tatagata, tatata, tat as suchness, as it isness. Bam tvamasi. Or I is I. I is tat, not manas. Neither buddhi even. And so the way of buddhi um, uh, keeps the uh, manasic function as a subordinate, but eventually the two of them go away too and um, join with their home, go back to source. So he's trying to help people uh, break their attachments and craving for continued view and realize uh, what is the source of view, the source of manas, um, the deeper one that has constructed this uh, illusory uh, structure of view, thicket of views. Anyway, he goes on, talking to visitors and arguing with them was an essential part of this technique. For it to work effectively, Maharaj required that visitors talk about themselves and their worldview because he needed them to see that all these ideas were just concepts, having no ultimate reality. Right? The sunya of sankara. He needed people to look at their concepts, understand their uselessness, 
and then reject them in favor of direct experience. Some concepts are useful, of course, <laughs> but complicated view, uh, thicketed view, um, needs to be dropped in some way, for sure. And so direct experience is also called gnosis, and no, no is the basis of jnana. So direct experience is jnana that the jnani has made, which is, you know, self, so-called, they call, Advaita Vedanta will say self-realization. Um, in Buddhism, I, again, I think it's really third stage awakened. He goes on, I should mention here the limitations he, puts on, he put on the types of question that he was willing to answer. He would sometimes tell new people, I'm not interested in what you've heard or read. I'm not interested in secondhand information that you've acquired from somewhere else. Sugar in the palm. I'm only interested in your own experience of yourself. If you have any questions about that, you can ask me. Which is great. Later, after you had had your initial dialogues with him, he would introduce an even more stringent test for questions. Quote, as if, you know, Maharaj's, Nisargadat's uh, perspective I'm not interested in answering questions that assume the existence of an individual person who inhabits a body. I don't accept the existence of such an entity, for, so for me, such questions are entirely hypothetical. So don't ask me about your apparent selfhood. And David goes on, The second constraint was a real conversation killer. <laughs> you couldn't say, How do I get enlightened? What do I do? Because all such questions presuppose the existence of an I an assumption that Maharaj always used to reject. And so Atman is the apparent I. It's the last stage of I-ness. It's not Tat known as I. It's uh, Sankharic, Samskara, it's conceptual. It's a mentally fashioned, illusory, false identity. That's eighth fetter. And he's really saying, break the eighth fetter. So can I say he didn't break the eighth fetter? Um... Just because you think you break the eighth fetter doesn't mean you did, <laughs> actually. And uh, it's a little bit different. But I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe he broke the eighth fetter and he's finished. And he, and and guys can leave the octave looking like this. It's just not the way I thought. Because I mean, it's a strange thing, you know. <laughs> the confederation, not you know, generally below the gurus. Um, is less developed than we think, or we hope, or we wish. Likewise, maybe uh, one can leave the octave and have that so-called experience of the death of the self. It's really realizing the the non-existence of identity, the the maya of um, uh, uh, of atman, the, the illusory nature of identity, including the experience we become light. We become light is based on perception, perception and conception. What happens with the non-arising of perception? Well, then there's the non-arising of conception, or the non-arising of any uh, craving. Then um, perception is not perception, and light is not identified with, um, but one returns to the source of the light. Uh That light is a created product too, you know. It's prana that's been vad. It's the prana. It's letting. It's the light that's, that has let be, that has been allowed to, that the Logos has let be. And um, the end of the path is the return to that source. Not, not any kind of perceptually based attachment and identification. So 
but maybe um, somebody that looks as rough and a little bit uh, un- incomplete to me, like Nisargadat, is uh, qualified to leave the octave. I wouldn't know. It's ahead of me. But there are two ways to look at it. So, he goes on, David said, I still have vivid memories of him listening as translators explained in Marathi uh, what some questioner had said. As he understood the gist of what the question was, Maharaja's face would sometimes turn to a scowl. He would clench his fist, bang it on the floor, and shout, Kalpana, Kalpana! Which means concept, concept. (laughs) That would sometimes be the only answer the questioners would get. Maharaj was definitely not interested in massaging visitors' concepts. He wanted people to drop them, not discuss them. So the purpose of discussing or presenting was to uh, see their um, imperm- to see the three marks actually, see the three characteristics anicca natta dukkha. Your views are impermanent and ever shifting. They're essentially without. They're, they're essentially insubstantial, without abiding substance or va- or meaning. <laughs> and of course, dukkha and uh, stressful. And so, he was a great teacher, um, leading people out of the thicket of views. Um, he did the sort of um, what um, slash and burn approach to the thicket of views. Going on, David said, when this second restriction effectively cut off most of the questions that people like to ask gurus, Maharaj would fill the vacuum by giving talks about the nature of consciousness. Day after day, he would continue with the same topic, often using the same analogies. He would explain how it, meaning consciousness, arises how it manifests, and how it subsides. In in retrospect, I think he was doing what the ancient rishis of India did when they told their disciples, you are Brahman, which is really like saying Brahman Vam Asi. Brahman Vam Asi is akin, you you, you are Brahman. Vam Asi means, um, uh, is that, is I, I is, thou art, something. So, he goes on, when a yani who's established, so, so there are yanis that are not, and there are yanis who are, okay? <laughs> so, there's the yani who's not so-called experienced his final death, or experienced the death of himself, and there are yanis who have. So, the, the, there's a little, the, this is where they get in, they've gotten into a lot of trouble. Guys that have had realization, com- imagining themselves completed. Realization is a stage, it's not the end. So, he goes on, when a yani who's established in Brahman as Brahman says to a disciple, you are Brahman, he's not merely conveying a piece of information. This is a very important paragraph also. There's a power and an authority in the words that, in certain cases, makes the listener become an experienced Brahman as he hears the words. Actually, it doesn't make the listener become it allows the listener to realize he is, if the listener is ready. And he goes on, this is a power and an authority that only yanis have. And um, this is the same from PureDhamma.net. In Sri Lanka, there seems to be a tradition that the author of the PureDhamma.net site uh, relays that is that the one who's at Sotapanna uh, and above, first, second, third, fourth stages of awakening in Buddhism, uh, can facilitate that awakening in others um, through their speaking of Buddha Dhamma 
with a power or a capacity that's simply not possible for those who have not yet had Sotapanna and beyond. And that's absolutely true. Meaning, uh, and Ra had said this too, when the upward spiraling light, South Pole, Kundalini, Shakti, coming up from the root crown, root crown chakra, meets the inward dwelling light, it's Shiva. When Shakti comes up and meets Shiva at the sixth chakra, not yet seven, fine, at the sixth chakra, that something like the energy, the service to others is automatic at the energy generated at this level. So that when there is um, well-developed six chakra activation in play for a being, they're automatically doing service. But the service is the radiation of that one who knows one, that being who rests in being. That is the yani, not necessarily finished with the path, obviously. And so that yani or that one uh, radiates awareness, uh, transpersonal awareness of one, even though they're not finished with the path, that has a power, whether they speak or not, when they speak, yes, when they don't speak, yes, that will, that is a catalyst that beings will use as well as they can. It doesn't make the listener become an experienced Brahmin. It allows the listener who's ready to realize that he is Brahman, as he hears the words, and is affected by the energy, the energetic radiance going on. This is a power and an authority that only Yanis have. Buddhists awaken too, by the way. Other, and other traditions, of course. Other people can say, you are consciousness. You are Brahman. Endlessly. <laughs> That's called the people who don't know. But these will be just pieces of information that you can store in your mind, which is useful. But there's not the same radiance coming from that person who hasn't had at least uh, Satipanna and or Yani realization. And he goes on, when a Yani tells you this, the full authority of his state, it's, it's not him, it's the, it's the radiance of six ray. And the full force of that, of the full force that lies behind it are conveyed in the statement. Or conveyed, <laughs> the statement actually is carried by the uh, electromagnetics. If you take delivery of that information in the heart, in consciousness, then you experience that state for yourself. If you take delivery in your mind, you just store it as an interesting piece of information. Of course, heart and mind is the same, by the way. <laughs> so let's not quibble. That's the blue-green center. When Maharaj told you endlessly, you are consciousness. Or what? Um, uh, chit Vamasi? Chit Vamasi is uh, you are consciousness. Um, actually, one I, I, I is the source of consciousness. I is the source of light, not the same as the products of light or the fashionings. The, the differentiations of light include consciousness and one. Light and consciousness is the same, <clears throat> by the way. So consciousness and light is the same. But I is the source. That's Paramatman. Nityananda said it directly. Gautama talking about freedom from this all and life goes on so when Maharaj told you endlessly you are consciousness and that's where a lot of people get stuck not saying he's stuck but there's something more than that if you receive that information in utter inner silence it activated an awareness of consciousness to such an extent that you felt 
He isn't just telling me something. He's actually describing what I am right now in this moment. He's actually um, he's speaking your identity <laughs> or speaking your nature. He's speaking true nature. Harriet, did this ever happen to you? David says, yes. And I think this, that this is what he's referring to when he talked about getting the knowledge. Quote, it wasn't an intellectual knowledge he's talking about, and it wasn't self-realization either. It was a state in which concepts temporarily dissolve, leaving a simple awareness of the being that underlay them. That's um, Chittakash, or Hridayakash, the field or the space or the sky of heart-mind. While they lasted, the states were very useful. They gave you the conviction and the direct experience that there was something real and enduring that exists whether the mind is there or not, meaning whether there's the arising uh, or proliferation of sankara or not. Harriet said, this is all very interesting, but as you said, a lot of it's your own personal conjecture. Did Maharaj ever confirm? <laughs> it's like, that's what you think, but you're not the guru, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> maybe limited. Did Maharaj ever confirm himself that this is what he was doing or trying to do with the people who came to him? David said, not directly. He never explained or analyzed his teaching methods or not while I was there. Most of what I have just said comes from my own personal experience and my own interpretation of what I saw going on there. Other people may have other theories to explain what was going on. However, the facts of the matter are indisputable. People came to Maharaj, had talks or arguments with him, and at some point dropped their accumulation of ideas because they had been convinced that a direct experience invalidated all the long-cherished, all the long-held cherished notions that they had accumulated. And so, uh, <clears throat> those that were ready dropped their um, false, um, empty views. Let me tell you about one conversation I had with him because it gives some good circumstantial evidence for what I've just been trying to explain. Firstly, I should mention that I sometimes used to argue with Maharaj simply because I knew that he liked to people to argue with him. He seemed to like the cut and thrust of debate, and if no one had anything to ask or say, I'd pick up the ball and start a discussion with him. I can't... This is not... <laughs> you, you won't be allowed to do that with Gautama Nityananda. Or Ramana, actually. But they have different functions. But that doesn't mean they're all the same. But they may be. I don't know. They're not the same. Same attainment or not? I don't know. Does it matter? It might actually matter for some. He goes on, I can't remember any more exactly what we talked about on this particular day, but I do remember that we spoke for about five minutes, during which time I was ostensibly pointing out what I claimed were contradictions in his teachings. He, meanwhile, was doing his best to convince me that no contradictions were involved. It was all very good-humored, and I think he knew that I was only disputing with him because, firstly, we both liked talking and arguing about spiritual topics, and secondly, no one else had any urgent questions to ask. After about five minutes, though, he decided to bring the discussion to a close. Uh, and contradictions happen all the time, <laughs> by the way. I don't think you really understood the purpose of my dialogues here. This is a, what, a paraphrase of what Nisargadat said. I don't think you really understand the purpose of my dialogues here. I don't say things simply to convince people that they're true. 
I'm not speaking about these matters so that people can build up a philosophy that can be rationally defended and which is free of all contradictions. When I speak my words, I'm not speaking to your mind at all. I'm describing or I'm directing my words directly at consciousness. I'm planting my words in your consciousness. If you disturb the planting process by arguing about the meaning of the words, they won't take root there. Once my words have been planted in your consciousness, they will sprout, they will grow, and at the appropriate moment they will bear fruit. It's nothing to do with you. All this will happen by itself. However, if you think about the words too much or dispute their meaning, you will postpone the moment of their fruition. Very straightforward. He's seeding. Seeding awakening through a dialogue. All this was said in a very genial tone. However, at this point he got very, very serious. Glowering at me, he said very sternly, Enough talking. Be quiet and let the words do their work. End of conversation. I always recollect this exchange with happiness and optimism. I feel I've been graced by his presence and further graced by the words of truth he has planted within me. I think those words will always be with me, and I know that at the appropriate moment they will bloom. Earthquake. Bloom is the word. The word is bloom. Okay, we've got a lot of earthquakes here recently. At the appropriate moment, they will bloom, uh, with or without an earthquake, though sometimes with. And um, time has go fast. This is the new style of uh, take it easy time. So I'm not going to read any more <laughs> from the dialogue, but go to some of his quotes. Just a few. <laughs> and you can see what you think. Um, and the quotes are different than his dialogue because the dialogue is really the great work with students and the quotes are just things we can think about or things we can receive and, and um, uh, observe or, or enjoy um, but his, his uh, wrangling with the students that came in full of, uh, full of complex tangled view um, not everyone did, but many did. Uh, that's the great. That was a great transformative work, um, and that seemed to be the main uh, method of his uh, service to humanity. Um, at least that's his work. The way he was working with students. So I think I'm going to end the reading of David Godman <laughs> right in the middle of page four. Mm, not too far for today, but I, I wanted to explain those matters. Um, about levels and attainment and the difference between 6 and 8 density uh, at the top here. And now let me read a couple of quotes from the page Nisargadat Maharaj, a great Maharashtrian Yani. Um, and I'm not really sure who put this together, but I'll include the link, and um, it's very well done. So he, here you can see what he's teaching and see what, see what you think. Uh, think on it or don't think on it. <laughs> Up to you. Uh, statements of wisdom um, numbered. And Nisargadat said, All your problems are your body's problems. Food, clothing, shelter, family, friends, name, fame, security, survival, 
All these lose their meaning the moment you realize that you may not be a mere body. 2. You give no attention to yourself, capital S. Your mind is always occupied with things, people, and ideas, and never with yourself. Again, all this capital S. Bring yourself into focus. Become aware of your own existence. See how you function. Watch the motives and results of your actions. By knowing what you are not, you come to know yourself. The way back to yourself is through refusal and rejection. One thing is certain, the real is not imaginary. It is not a product of the mind. Even the sense, quote, I am, is not continuous, though it's a useful pointer. It shows where to seek, but not what to seek. All you need is to get rid of the tendency to define your self. Self and Atman are one, of course. All definitions apply to your body only, and to its expressions. Once this obsession with the body goes, you will revert to your natural state spontaneously and effortlessly. We discover it by being earnest. I'm sure he. I'm not sure he said we. So who, whoever translated this, who can say? But I'm sure it's uh, sub suboptimal. We discover it by being earnest, by searching, inquiring, questioning daily and hourly, by giving one's by giving one's life to discovery. Three, he said. Between the spirit and the body, it is love that provides the bridge. The mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses it. 4. A sense of separate existence is a reflection in a separate body of the one reality. Sat, uh, capital R, Sat. In this reflection, the unlimited and the limited are confused and taken to be the same. To undo this confusion is the purpose of yoga. This is a very important comment, I'd say. Uh, a sense, I'll, I'll just read it again. I know I've know I got to get out of here. Four, a sense of separate existence, this sense of subjectivity, is a reflection in a separate body of the one reality, of sat. In this reflection, the unlimited and the limited are confused and taken to be the same. To undo this confusion is the purpose of yoga. 5. He who has a body sins with the body. He who has a mind sins with the mind. 6. I'll go to 10. Like beads on a string, events follow events forever. They are all strung on the basic idea, I am the body. End quote. But even this is a mental state and does not last. It comes and goes like all other states. The illusion of a body-mind is there only because it is not investigated. Non-investigation is the thread on which all the states of mind are strung. It is like darkness in a closed room. It is there, apparently, but when the room is opened, where does it go? It goes nowhere because it was not there. Like the uh, flame. (laughs) <laughs> the uh, where does the flame go? All states of mind, all names and forms of existence are rooted in non-investigation, non-inquiry, imagination, and credulity. It is right to say, I am, but to say, I am this or I am that, is a sign of not inquiring, not examining, mental weakness, or lethargy. 
this is very much aham vichar, by the way, this uh, method, we're talking about self-inquiry, aham vichar, straight along with Ramana Maharshi's teaching, core to most Advaita Vedanta. Seven, uh, if you say, quote, I am the body, you show it. Well, it is there only when you think of it. Both mind and body are intermittent states. The sum total of these flashes creates the illusion of existence, just like a film. Inquire what is permanent in the transient, real in the unreal. This is sadhana. 8. Events in time and space, birth and death, cause and effect, may be taken as one, but the body and the embodied are not of the same order of reality. The body and the embodied. The body exists in time and space and is transient and limited, while the dweller is timeless and spacious and spaceless, eternal and all-pervading. To identify the two is a grievous mistake and the cause of endless suffering. You can speak of the mind and body as one, but the body-mind is not the underlying reality. 9. I repeat, I was not, am not, shall not be a body. To me, this is a fact. I too was under the illusion of having been born. But my guru made me see that birth and death are mere ideas. Birth is merely the idea, I have a body. And death is the idea, I have lost my body. Now, when I know I am not a body, the body may be there or may not. What difference does it make? The body-mind is like a room. It is there, but I need not live in it all the time. And a room is not the self. I live in the room. I is not the room that I'm currently experiencing. Ten, and the last question, and a question answer. Question, what dies with death? Nisargadat. The idea, I am this body, dies. The witness does not. Yep, pop up. So, great teaching. Great, great teaching. So, that's it for today. At 110, uh, it'll bloom. So, next time we'll pick up <laughs> the middle of page 4 again and uh, take it slow. And um, also, I think I will be reading these 10, 10 passages or something. We'll see what the number is. At the end of the read-through of David Godman's interview, reminiscent, you know, re- recollection of life with Nisargadat, I'll read the quotes at the the teaching quotes at the end, and then after we finish this long dialogue with David Godman, go back directly to that page of the quotes and start from the top, and that'll <laughs> go through the end of the year. So anyway, I hope this has been helpful. Thank you for all involved. Take good care of yourselves. See you next time and good night.